Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming, and this is Cog Dog Radio, a place where I will share my stories, cases, and considerations when it comes to all things dog sports and dog training. I hope you enjoy it. A special guest. She is my friend Amy. And the reason she's on the podcast today is because she's pretty much who I call when I have training questions, training confusions, training complaints, training concerns. And she really helps me just to hash it out. And we recently had a very interesting conversation that I said, you know, this would be really great on the podcast. I think a lot of people would appreciate hearing about this. So we're going to talk to her today and hopefully replay some of the conversation that we had before, which is basically about being wrong in training and doing things wrong. So, hey, Amy, thank you for being on my podcast. Hey, Sarah. You're welcome. (laughs) Um, So we've been talking about this concept of basically... Everything we're ever doing in training, at some point we find out later that it was wrong. <laughs> Almost everything. Almost everything. Um, and so if that's how it's always going to go, you know, what are, what are we even doing? How can we know what we're doing right? And are we ever doing anything right? And is it helpful to try anything at all or should we all just go back to bed and never do any more training (laughs) ever again (laughs) i mean there are some days where i do just need to go back to bed and not train the dog absolutely Um, but i think largely for me and we talked about this the other week it has less to do about the fact that we are often wrong i actually have little concern about the fact that I almost always, a few months or a few years down the road, figure out that something I thought or something I did was maybe not the best practice. I think the important piece is that we need to be okay with this reality of functioning in a field that is a scientific one, that we are always going to find out that we were wrong or we didn't have the best information and that that is okay. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, that's absolutely been my experience in dog training. Um, I think back to a lot of the things that I used to believe were right um, or correct is really the better word. And um, now I laugh about those things because I know just how wrong I was. And it makes me kind of afraid for about, you know, what am I doing now that five years, 10 years down the line, I'm going to look back and have those same feelings. Um, So I guess, how do we protect ourselves from this kind of paralysis of thinking, you know, like, let's say I want to train a running dog walk, for instance. Mm -hmm. How do we protect ourselves from like this paralysis of absolutely knowing that I'm going to train this dog a running dog walk, and then next time I am going to see all the ways in which I could have done this better. I think for me, I might be taking this for a second a little too far away from this being a dog training podcast, but I will bring it back, I promise. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) I know. The problem with this being recorded is that... (laughs) We can't, because we can't just go off on, like, a a half an hour tangent. (laughs) All right. right I'll I'll rein it back in. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. Okay, so... Again, this is a little bit separate from dog training, but bear with me for a second because I want to relate this to like the distinction between shame and guilt. 
And I feel like everybody is turning their podcast off now because they don't want to hear us talking about this. <laughs> but the distinction that I make between those two things is that shame is largely I am something bad, right? Right. I am a bad person. Whereas guilt is largely I did something bad. Yeah. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I feel like my experience in this field, in talking to other trainers and seeing them make mistakes, is that we have a very hard time going, I am a good trainer, and I didn't have that particular piece of information. I, again, in my experience, feel like we go pretty quickly to, I am not a good trainer. And I think that it's very important that we are able to separate those two things out, that you can both be a good trainer and not have the particular answer to something and know that you will do it differently next time and look back and know that you should have potentially been able to do it differently that time. I think that's so important. And I think I I talk to people about this all the time, especially in some of the um, behavior problem solving that I do for performance dogs that so many people really attach their self-worth to their dog's behavior. Um, And I definitely think there are some trainers who, maybe not knowingly, but definitely promote that kind of thing. They basically say, you know, anyone can have a certain level of success with any dog as long as the person's skills are good enough. And so then that puts all of this on these people whose dogs are, you know, really struggling and they go, this is me. This is something that I am that's not adequate. And that's why my dog is like this rather than and it's never helpful to think that way. It's helpful instead to think, you know, I made mistakes, but, you know, I'm still here doing my best and so is my dog and we will make mistakes in the future and that's still fine it's still okay and in you talking about that in the trainers who promote it i was sort of like brought back to one of the first people who i learned sort of specifically about dog training from and one of the things that she said to me always And I feel like I need to pretense this by saying that I don't think she was wrong in saying this, but I'm going to tell you how I as a person took this information. The words that she would say is that your dog is your resume, right? Mm -hmm. Your dog is your resume. Your Mm -hmm. dog is a direct reflection of you as a trainer. Now, again, I don't necessarily think that she's wrong, but as a young 16-year-old trainer, with a very dog, I'll label her, dog reactive dog, human reactive dog, I had a lot of shame about that. Because all that I had in my head was that this dog was a reflection of me. And when she behaved in a way that perhaps I would rather she didn't, I really internalized that and I really took it personally. And I think that one of my strengths as a trainer at this point in my life is that I can say, for the most part, that I am really good about just being able to look at something as behavior, and I don't take it personally, and I don't internalize it, and I'm able to just sort of step back and think about how we can actually just fix it. But I do think that there's this perpetuation of, you know, your dog perhaps behaved in a way you didn't want them to and you are somehow bad because of that absolutely and I think I think a lot of trainers and again let's go back she's not wrong she's not especially if you are kind of an aspiring trainer in any kind of professional way your own animals are in many ways your resume Um, but I think what we have to I think we have to cut that up a little bit and say, well, what does that actually mean? And to me, for it to be a really accurate statement, your, your animal's behavior is not your resume. But 
the way that you respond to their behavior is. Yeah. I like that distinction. And I, cause that's, that's absolutely true. And so if I see a trainer, um, you know, saying that they're going to do one thing, but then acting another way or, or even, you know, the trainer's dog accent or animal, whatever animal acts, acts in an unexpected way to them. The way that they respond, I think, defines them um, much, much more than what the animal did in the first place. Because we can't, we can never control everything that the animal's ever going to do. I think that's another really popular fantasy that is put out there by a lot of dog trainers, is that we can always have total control over them as long as we are good enough at training. And I think, too, something gets a little muddy here when you look at a trainer who is particularly accomplished in a sport. Because, again, going back to this initial trainer of mine who was not wrong in saying that the dog is your resume, I think if you are teaching in a particular sport, it's important that you have done well in that sport. Okay, it's just another yes. opinion that I sold. Sure. And in that case, you know, of course, I think your dog's behavior in competition, right, is largely reflective most of the time as your skill as a trainer. I think what is important is as you're training those skills to your dog, If your dog makes a mistake, which your dog always will, our dogs are always going to make mistakes. I think it's important for us, not only as trainers, but for us watching other trainers train to become or to attempt to become more comfortable with that process. Yes, totally. I think we are as uncomfortable with our own errors as we are with other people's. I think especially when we, you know, want to pay a professional, we want to see them never having a session where things go wrong. Um, and Which we is also, unrealistic. It is unrealistic. And we also want, we want things to be true forever. If we bought a dog training book 10 years ago, okay, <laughs> And then we do exactly what that dog training book does for 10 years. And then we go see this person. We go, we, let's say we go to a seminar with this person 10 years later and they completely contradict everything in that book. That makes them good, not bad. That makes them, Absolutely. A, that makes them a growing professional. If you can stand up as a professional and say, hey, that book I wrote, it's got a lot of stuff in it that I think that I think I know better now. And here's, you know, here's what I know better than it now. That was a terrible sentence, but I think <laughs> I think we're I think hopefully everybody will follow it. Um that that makes them a good trainer, but that irritates the audience cuz they go, "Wait, I just figured this out. I thought I learned it. What are you doing?" Because we're uncomfortable with that. Yeah, largely. we are. Yeah. And I think actually, so in knowing you, for the years that I have. Um, I hope you're comfortable with me saying that I sort of watched you step into a little bit more of a public light um, with your blog and with your podcast and with your recent online classes at FDSA. Yes. And I think one of the things that we talk about a lot and actually what prompted us to having this conversation the first time was that we were talking about one of the blogs that you wrote. like two years ago (laughs) I think it was about errorless learning it was about errorless learning it was because as part of that blog we had sort of talked about and developed this weird little brainchild of how potentially articles could be done in an errorless way with what our understanding of errorless learning was two years ago yeah (laughs) and here's the thing is that we could pull up that blog and we could go through it and we could pick out the pieces that aren't right. Yeah. And one of the really cool things that happened recently 
in the FDSA alumni group is that you told me this story, but that somebody had posted asking about the video that you did on the articles yeah as a part of that blog yeah and you responded and you sent them the link and then you said hey guys I mean what did you say I said by the way this didn't work (laughs) exactly I said because somebody else actually posted the link to the video somebody else found it and posted it and I saw this whole conversation and everybody was like this is so great I'm gonna do this and I was like okay I feel obligated to raise my hand and say hey heads up I was wrong um it was a good thought and a good idea but it turned out to be wrong and I kind of did a bullet list of the of the things I learned from it um and the and the mistakes that I was making in the video and Here's and here's the thing. I'm at a place now where that didn't make me uncomfortable. Right. And there are so few trainers who could do that, who could stand up and say, hey, I know, here's the deal. I wrote a blog and the internet has no eraser, which means that this exists forever. I will, and it is okay. And I will never have the time or the desire to go back through every single blog I ever wrote and say, here's what I've learned since then. No, that's just not realistic. What I can keep, what I can do though, is keep putting out material about what I'm learning so far. And anytime somebody does bring up something that I wrote, I, two days ago, two years ago, however long ago that I've since kind of learned better, I can stand up and say what I've learned since then. And I think this is important, too. I think we just talked about it for a minute from, like, the trainer side. And I think this also has a lot of importance on the consumer side, which is that when you are sort of like what you were saying about the book earlier, when you're a consumer and when you are choosing a professional that you would like to learn from, I think it it is equally, if not more important, for us to start talking about the fact that we really need to look at the information and we need to look at when it was put out and we need to move forward with the understanding of this DVD was released in 2010. Right. And it's 2017. And when I go to this person's seminar, seven years later, not only is it okay if the information is different, but actually, it should be. But we should, right, we should concerned. expect it. We should expect it to be different. We should. Yes. A hundred percent. Yes. And sort of in this conversation, one of the people that I've been thinking about a lot as we've been talking is Shade Weitzel. Yeah. Because I think it's one of the reasons why she is such an exceptional trainer. Because... I'll just, I'm going to go ahead and say that she's a great trainer. And I'm going to go ahead and suggest that she also knows that she's a great trainer. And still, she is probably the most comfortable person who I have come across who will willingly say, that was wrong. Yeah. That was wrong two years ago. This is what I'm doing now. Or who will willingly say, I don't have the answer right now. This is what I'm doing. Ask me in two years. Yeah. Because I think that in order to be a really, really good trainer, it actually has nothing to do with you having all the information. It has to do with you doing the best that you can today, taking in everything that you can tomorrow, and continuously, step by step, moving forward. And keeping your hands in it and continuing to train. And I think, you know, and, and knowing that the most dangerous thing to do is to just do it the way you've always done it. Yeah. I think you're right. Um, I think that Shade is the epitome of this for me because she is, yes. she is, her hands are always in it. She's out there competing and training. She trains hard all the time. And and so she 
is constantly learning and evolving and she's also a total pioneer i mean in her sport in her sport yeah. which is just a, nobody's doing it nobody's doing anything the way that she's doing it and so she is also having to figure it out as she goes and so i think that you know when we think about how to be a great trainer it's not about never screwing it up it's about screwing it up again and again and again until you get it right it's about it's about <laughs> screwing it up and then realizing how you screwed it up so that you can do it right the next time. I think too often people realize they screwed something up, but they kind of have no idea how. And so they're not sure how to get to the other side of it. Um, or they just blame the dog. I mean, that happens all the time, right? Well, this dog is yep. defective. <laughs> well, this dog <laughs> has XYZ problems and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, we all kind of know now that that's... You know, that's such a such a bunch of excuses, right? Um, But for real, I think I think that, you know, coming back to the consumer side of things again, expecting a trainer to present the exact same material to you every single time you go see them um, is not a good thing. And when trainers come out with new information or when trainers come out and say, hey, I know I taught you this this way. This is the way I'm doing it now and this is why. Instead of getting mad about that, because I've had people mad at me about it. Yeah. Um, thank them. Say, awesome. Thanks for the new information. Let's grow. Like, I'm ready to grow. Absolutely. Or go yeah. to a, or go to a different trainer if you don't like the direction that the trainer is going in. That's also fine. But never, you know, when when we as pro, when I as a professional, I met with um, people feel people almost feel slighted, like I withheld information last time, if I've changed the way I'm doing something. When in reality, you should expect me to be changing the way I'm doing things. You should. And I, I think all we can ever expect is for a person to say, this is my idea. I don't know the answer. Like Shade, you know, we'll say, I don't know, but this is what I'm trying. And I'll right. let you know and when I do know. a year. Yeah. And here's another thing, like from the trainer side of it, another sort of hallmark of mine for a great trainer is one who not only learns from their own mistakes, but shares those very mistakes with their students. Yes, completely. Don't just show me a video of everything going seamlessly, right? And right. that's, so that's in the sessions, but then also talking about, you know, like, Iggy's almost nine, and I did a lot of things with her as a puppy that I really believed were best, and I taught a lot of people the same stuff that I was doing with her because I really believed it was best. And now, almost nine years later, I've almost done a 180 in how I raise and train a performance dog. And you that should be how, that should be how things are going. And then I should share that with people too. And yeah. so I do. You know, if I've still got clients, um, you know, the nature of things is that you, your clientele continues to shift as well. But when I see clients kind of buying into really popular mindsets or beliefs in my sport, which was a lot of what I was doing with her as a puppy, I'll say, hey, I did that. I thought it was a good idea too. Here's what happened that I don't like. And here's why I didn't do it that way this next time. If we're not talking about those things, then everything just stays stagnant. And the, the industry does not benefit from that. I think dog training in general, everybody wants to stay a little bit too secretive. When, if we're gonna, if we are actually going to be the scientific field, the, the applied science field that we should be, then we have to be continuing to put out everything we do. And that's going to be mostly mistakes because mostly we're doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
everybody all the time. Not just me, not just you, but everybody all the time is doing things wrong and that's how we figure it out. It is. It's how, I mean, it's how any applied science field gets better. As we say, you know, this is how we used to do it. We know that that's not a good idea now. Here's how we're doing it now. And yeah, ask us in 10 years and we might be doing it differently. Hopefully, exactly. hopefully we will Hopefully be. we are. Hopefully we are. I think about, I don't know why I'm thinking about cancer treatment right now, but like if we think, if you look at the, if you look at cancer treatment and how it has evolved, um, it's amazing the steps that have been taken. And I hope sincerely that in the not too terribly distant future, we look back on the way that we treat cancer today and absolutely roll our eyes and, and yeah. cannot believe um, how bad we were screwing that up. <laughs> because wouldn't it be an amazing thing if, again, in the not so distant future or in the distant future, like we can look back and we can be like, okay, like, let me be clear really quickly that I'm not a medical professional. <laughs> <laughs> Neither of us are medical professionals. You. Not even close. <laughs> But Disclaimer, if you have a problem, go to a doctor. <laughs> if this is an emergency, call 911. <laughs> because wouldn't it be great if we can look back at chemotherapy yeah. and be like, wow, this solved this particular area of our problems, but it created all of these other ones. And so we progress forward. And I don't feel like that is all that different from dog training. Like we, we do one thing and it solves a particular problem, but maybe there are other things that creep up because of it right. that we then need to solve later. Right. But I, again, I think the point of all of this is that it's all okay. Yeah, because think about you know, if we were afraid to make a mistake, whether we're talking about oncology or dog training or whatever we're talking about, if we were, if we just keep doing what we've always done, then the field basically ceases to exist. It ceases to be an applied science. It's now just a practice. It's now just a, we're just doing a thing. Um, and if we... On the flip side of that, um, basically stop doing anything because we don't know the answer. Like if I hadn't tried errorless scent article training, right? <laughs> then I wouldn't know. Like I know more now than I did before I tried that. Yeah. My dog still doesn't know scent articles, but that's we the We still don't point. know how to do that. <laughs> times over the past two years have we had a conversation about what we would do now what we would add now yeah what we constantly would actually not do I mean it's a pretty consistent conversation for us and it's a good one because not because it doesn't matter that they're sent articles it could be any behavior right it's a good conversation because we're constantly moving it forward right and we're constantly addressing what potentially could have been done better but not in a deprecating way right right because it's okay to say it's not just okay it's beneficial it's the best it thing to, it's the best thing to do to stand up and say here's what i tried and it was an error you know like i love it when i go to i'm just right now i'm thinking about um one of the talks I went to with Ken Ramirez at Clicker Expo mm -hmm. this year, um, back in January. Um, and I love that he stood up there and he said, okay, I'm going to tell you what I did and I'm going to tell you how it worked out. And then I'm going to tell you why I don't think this is a good idea yeah. <laughs> for people to do. I mean, that to me, that's the mark of a, that's a true scientist. That's a good professional who's 
just because it's not a good idea to do doesn't mean it's not a good thing to share and talk about. Actually, it's a good thing to share and talk about. Um, I think too often we just get trapped in talking about how to do stuff right. And we don't realize that when we're talking about how to do stuff right, we're unknowingly talking about how to do stuff wrong most of the time. And so why not actually knowingly talk about how to do stuff wrong so that we can all learn how to be more right in the future? Right. And I think, too, like what you were just saying about Ken and that talk that he gave. So recently, um, in a course that I am taking, we have been talking about null findings on research in a research project Mm -hmm. because what tends to happen in a lot of journals is that and i'm going to actually go ahead and say exclusively the research that is accepted is research that is statistically significant yeah almost across the board and there is a very 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 large collection of research that came up with a null finding that nobody is talking about, nobody is publishing. And because of that, if we're just talking about everything as behavior, again, I'm not talking about anybody being a bad person here. I'm talking about people sometimes doing bad things in that a lot, I shouldn't say a lot. There are some people who are fabricating data in order to have a statistically significant finding, in order to have their work published in journals, because that is what is reinforcing, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm a scientist and I'm doing research, most likely one of my functional reinforcers for this is to get published. And if I am only going to get published, if this is statistically significant, and if I run my data and it comes up that it's going to be a null finding, Again, not talking about anyone being a bad person, just talking about behavior, right? It is more likely that we are going to behave in such a way that gives us the result of being published. Yep. And there's been a a recent push, the reason why I was thinking about this, for journals who are not only accepting, but even some who are prioritizing null findings. And I think that it is something again, that can be tied back to dog training, is we can and we should be asking for things that didn't work just as much as we're asking for the things that did. Completely. I mean, I would even, gosh, how cool would it be to go to some kind of symposium with all these trainers that, that are so fantastic and have been in the field for so long, and to have them all just do a presentation on something they tried that didn't work. Yes. I, I would mean, pay. Do you know how much money I would pay for that? I like if we put Ken and, you know, Susan Friedman and oh, my God, like Bob Bailey. Like if we put if we put these trainers up and we went to, and we had a symposium and they just each did a presentation on something that they tried that didn't work. It didn't work. I would pay four times as much as I'm paying for Clicker Expo. <laughs> I mean, come, come on, I, maybe not four times, um, twice but as much. I don't know. Twice as much. I'd maybe. probably pay twice as much. It'd probably be worth twice as much to me to go. And it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a great idea for everybody. I don't think that everybody would get, you know, like a super novice trainer would not get a lot out of that. But somebody who really wanted to do that outside the box thinking, um, like you and I like to do in these conversations that we have all the time. Wouldn't that be fascinating? I mean, um, you've worked with Bob Bailey a lot more than I, I I haven't worked with him at all, but I think you've worked with him more than even most people have who have worked with him. Does he talk much about the things he tried that didn't work? He does. Yeah. Um, Yes. I mean, I could give you a few different examples now. Um, But absolutely. There are, of course, 
many great stories about all the things that went really well. Right, because those are the things I think most of us hear about are the tremendous training tasks that he undertook and succeeded with. But you have to recognize that, of course, there had to have been immense failures, too. And actually, Project Pelican is, I think, a project that a lot of animal trainers or some animal trainers are familiar with. And the cool thing about that, since we're having this conversation, is that it did fail. And it didn't fail because the bird's behavior didn't hold up or anything you, like that, but it failed. Can you just talk for a second about what that is? Yeah, so it is just in really sort of quick terms. It is what we have heard about when the bird is sort of restrained in, let's say, a box or just some container and they are facing a screen or an animation and there's a target on that screen in front of them and there is like a missile flying at the bird and the bird's object is to peck the missile in such a way that it aligns with the middle of the target ideally to then intercept that missile. Okay. And they trained for this project and the training went really, really well and it still failed. They didn't get the funding for it. It's just, it's another way to have a failure. But I think that it's just an interesting thing to bring up because a lot of people know about this. It's something that I learned about in like my psychology textbook even recently, which is pretty cool. That's cool. Um, And it still did, you know, technically failed. And another thing you said, I think is important when you were talking about this symposium, which I think is fabulous of things that didn't work, you said that it wouldn't be great for a novice trainer. And since we're talking about being wrong, I think it's worthwhile to acknowledge, you're going to have to help me out here in how to articulate this because we talk about this all the time, how our information has to change for our audience. Yes. And if I am explaining something to a novice trainer, the exact conversation I have to them, it is likely that there could be a more quote-unquote advanced trainer standing nearby who would hear some things I'm saying and who would think that they're wrong. Yes. Do you want to take that thought and run with it? So it's a little bit like, um, I actually, again, I was having a conversation with Shade Weitzel um, about this, where she was saying, you know, if on a scale of one to 10, if she's an eight, let's say, trainer, that was her, she decided she was an eight. Um, (laughs) I think I'd, I'd personally probably give her a little more than that, but she, she, she said, so she's like, so if I'm an eight, my skills are best, um, used teaching sixes yeah, or or maybe sevens. She's like, but a lot of what I'm going to say is going to be lost on a four or a five and definitely lost on anything lower than that. She's like, and, and she's right. And so then on the same scale, the best person to be training, let's say a pet dog training class with just dog owners who are not interested in becoming trainers, right? They just want a good dog. The best person for that job is not an eight. The best person for that job is like a four. Or is an eight who can curate their information for yes. a four. Yes. Or yes. Or who is an eight or a ten or a whatever, but who can curate their information. I think that's a really, really nice way to put it. But I think what so often happens is that the training, it's it's a little bit like, you know, um, if I try to pick up a textbook on neuroscience, I'm going to have a really hard time with it because... I'm not a neuroscientist. I actually, I just have a bachelor's of science degree. I don't have any, you know, upper level training in academia. Picking up a neuroscience textbook, it's difficult for me to read. I know this because I've done it. 
I read it. I read parts of it. I did do fine with it, but it's not easy for me to read, right? And it's not, and I'm sure that there's parts of it I don't understand that I think I understand. But anyway, what I'm trying to say is that what's, what would be better for me would be like listening to a TED talk on neuroscience. And even if the same person who wrote the textbook is doing the talk, if the person who's doing the talk has curated that information for the audience who's listening to the talk, yeah, then are you getting everything? No, because you shouldn't have everything because there's no way you're going to be able to swallow it. Right. And it's like, because you talked about Ken Ramirez earlier, I'm thinking about him right now. And I think that he is particularly good at taking these advanced concepts and curating them down to a really attainable level. And he does it at Clicker Expo year after year. Yeah, I've watched him, especially in learning labs, with people actually trying to train their own dogs um, in the learning lab on very advanced skills. mostly like his concept training skills i've absolutely watched him be able to do that he's very good and if you ask him like hey there was this this tidbit you know you said this and you know can you explain that to me he has no problem going that doesn't actually apply to where you are as a trainer right now necessarily you know like he can say that that is the way that i chose to deliver that particular piece of information because of the audience that I was delivering it to. And what I will tell you is this. It again comes full circle back to where we started this conversation, which is that not only is it okay for us to be wrong sometimes or to say things that are not 100% correct, but I think that in many situations it should be expected. Yeah. And it should be, it's, again, you know, I'll go back to like the example of being in a dog training seminar or something like that. I taught a seminar recently where um, the audience was, as a whole, really needing a lot more foundation than I'm used to providing in the seminars that I've been teaching. And so... I did have to pare it down and give them, you know, what I thought could be helpful for them there today at the time, right? And it was all of that stuff, you know, I'm not even going to say it's wrong because it's not wrong. It's just not as right as it can be. It's just not as right as I know how to make it, I guess. Um, but appropriate for that trainer in front of me that I'm trying to teach that day. Yeah. And I think if you don't understand kind of these different layers, then, because I think there's kind of two things. I think there's a lot of trainers who are kind of newer, newer to training, but um, really enthusiastic about training and they have like a lot of information. And so they want to impart all of that information on all of their students all the time. And then you get to a different level in your ability and you understand that there is no reason for you to try to explain what quadrant of operant conditioning we're working in right now. There's no reason for that. You're making me laugh right now because I'm thinking about myself as this younger, really enthusiastic trainer. Yeah. Oh, I'm thinking about myself too. Had a conversation with, I'm going to leave this particular person unnamed, <laughs> but who had a conversation with an unnamed trainer who was much smarter than I was and, and am. And I was very enthusiastic and very passionate in my explanation of why classical and operant conditioning were separate processes. <laughs> I can only hope to be as kind <laughs> to the enthusiastic trainer who tries to tell me why they are separate. <laughs> right. Because again, I was wrong. Right. 
And it's okay. It is okay because you are on your quest to true understanding. That was actually an important moment for you. And had that person been cruel to you about it. And sometimes it's really important to just let somebody think they're right. Well, because I actually think if I recall this memory correctly, I do believe I left that conversation still thinking I was right. <laughs> I do not believe that this person tried to explain to me why we can't actually separate these out. You're going to have to tell me who this was later. Um, <laughs> because God bless whoever this was, because it's so smart of that person. I mean, it was probably Lindsay Wood. I mean, I'm, I was going to say it's probably Lindsay. It was. All right, so it was I'm Lindsay sure. Wood. Lindsay Wood, thank God for you. Because. Thank God for you. <laughs> had she tried to just correct you in that moment, then all she'd be doing was really just stealing the wind from your sails. Like, you're passionate and excited about something. That's yeah. a good thing. And sometimes, you know, that happens in dogs too. If my dog does something wrong does does like you know let's say i um give the dog a down signal in utility or whatever yep. and the dog like enthusiastically boldly gives me a sit instead and the dog is like yep. certain they were correct it's not actually super important for me in that moment to tell them they were wrong no I'm not going to tell them I'm not going to tell them that they're right. But I am going to show them that I appreciate their enthusiasm. And again with like the moving of this information forward, right? It was Lindsay Wood who <laughs> let me passionately explain to her. <laughs> I'm laughing extra hard cuz it's Lindsay because this is so her area. Why? These two processes were separate. Oh, my God. And then she did not tell me I was wrong. But what she did do is she pocketed that information of what my understanding was. Fast forward, what, five years? And she gives, four or five years, she gives a talk at Clicker Expo that addresses this very misunderstanding that she has watch trainers have yep. over the years yep. and it was really cool because in that talk there was somebody in the audience who had been a colleague of mine and Lindsay's at a previous humane society and the cool thing was is that at the moment of that talk that trainer was in the same place that I was those four years ago when I passionately believed that these two processes were separate. And I think it was probably pretty cool. Maybe this is me being a little too nerdy about wanting to learn and loving to learn, because I think that it was probably pretty cool for this person to see Lindsay on this stage giving this talk, as opposed to Lindsay having shut her down in mm -hmm. her yeah. misunderstanding of that and I think that the majority of people who are going to be listening to this and the majority of people who are out there would have shut down that misunderstanding as opposed to just pocketed it and known that they were going to address that at a later time and maybe gosh this opens like a whole different door because another really cool conversation we could have could be about how as a teacher you're learning from the questions that your students are asking how yeah. how to better give information or not even necessarily the questions but if you let your students tell you the answers you learn what they don't know and so then you learn better how to teach them as opposed right. to always just giving them information giving them information and i like to train dogs like that i like to tell yeah. i like to have the dog tell me what they know so that then I can fill in the holes as opposed to me always telling the dog what I want them to know. Because in your example, in the utility ring, when you give the down signal and the dog sits, yeah, this is the same as... It's the same as you, you explaining that to Lindsay. Because yeah. 
it doesn't serve you in that moment to explain why the sit was wrong. Right. Right. What it does serve you to do is to pocket that information that under these conditions, the dog thinks this thing and to address it later. Yeah. And that's, I'm always telling people that when they have questions about what to do in the agility ring when things go wrong, right? Dog misses a weave hole, dog misses a contact, whatever. They always want to know, what do I do? What do I do? My answer is always, it doesn't actually matter what you do in that moment because you're not going to fix it in that moment. All it is, is it's information. The dog just told you what they know. So instead of, because everybody wants to think that it was a mistake, you got to tell the dog it was a mistake so they don't make the mistake again. Right, and That's, if you pull them off the course, right? If you pull them off the course, will be perfect next time. Or you yell down, or you repeat the weaves until they get it right, because we're allowed to repeat weave pulls, but we're not allowed to repeat contacts. Explain yes. that to me. I don't understand the rule makers, but um, <laughs> basically, it's just we all want to be Lindsay Wood. I mean, we all want to be Lindsay Wood anyway. I mean, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> be Lindsay Wood in this moment and just pocket the information. And then and teach, and then teach it, date. teach it better later when it's yep. time to teach it. Because in that moment, you were really excited about this science, and that's really good. And yep. had she, you know, told you what an idiot you were, <laughs> <laughs> I would not have been as excited to have this. No, and your relationship, <laughs> your teacher-student relationship. Um, would have suffered too in that moment so it's all the same thing it's all we are all gonna be wrong a lot of the time and we all need to be more accepting of that in each other we do we We need to be more accepting of it and I think even that we can encourage it I was just gonna say an appreciative of it right absolutely yeah I think we should be all right, Amy, I have held you for <laughs> long enough for today, but I hope that you will come on the podcast again sometime because I think this was a good conversation. I think this is a good conversation. Let's be honest for a second, okay? Because we're talking about being wrong. Yes. Me coming on the podcast again would be largely dependent on my ability to take my own advice when I listen back to this. <laughs> hear myself be wrong but this time it's on a podcast which is a little rough it's gonna exist forever (laughs) like i'm gonna be wrong in a lot of the things i said today i you you know what so and i were both we were both probably wrong a lot of the time for the past 45 minutes and if i'm taking my own advice i'm gonna say it's okay i'm gonna say it's okay too so thanks friend i'll talk to you soon Thank you for listening to CogDog Radio. If you've got questions or suggestions, you can shoot them over to CogDogRadio at gmail.com. And be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. See you next time.